All right, everybody. Hello again. We are back. Richard should be joining us momentarily, and then we'll dive right into the latest round of fun in the sun. Although it does not happen to be sunny at the moment, because we've decided that having these a little bit later in the evening probably is ideal in terms of maximizing listenership. That's right. Yeah, we got. I think we got more listeners that seemed like they didn't give us the number because there was a glitch. But I think more people uh, listened last week than any of our previous episodes, and that was our latest. So makes sense to switch uh, to switch to later. Yeah, in in their desperation, people late at night decide that they just need their fill of me. So <laughs> I think I think that explains it. Um. So, have you been uh, have you been riveted to the uh, latest January sixth hearings? Do you set aside all your other daily tasks and make sure to pay undivided attention to these these hearings? Uh, no, I can't say that I do. Um, they're actually they're inter- I wish I, I just sort of do wish I had time because they're interesting to see as a sort of you know you're the, the, the it's the elite sort of uh, it's a civic religion right it's a ritual. And, you know, anthropologically, that's always very interesting, uh, you know, to get a glimpse of, um, do, you know, the, I get all the news alerts. I mean, so all the news alerts come from, you know, Washington Post to New York Times. And, you know, it's like just the stuff. It's like it's like stuff that, you know, we knew already or it's stuff that's just like, you know, a, a little bit of more of a spin on the stuff we knew already. Uh, so, you know, taking the just taking I mean, I'm not exactly blown away <clears throat> by the. Uh, uh, by the news alerts, what are apparently the highlights of of the hearings? Uh, but no, actually, I haven't seen much of it, and I, I sort of wish I wish I did have the time, but 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 I haven't. Have, have you watched any of it? Yeah, I've watched a uh, a fair amount, just you know, in the background as I'm doing something else or what have you. Um, mostly, I'm following it for a similar reason as you are, which is that I kind of want. The anthropological anthropological insight and why it is that this is preoccupying the political class, and there's something obviously politically relevant about the Democrats calculating that this is what they want to elevate as their top issue or one of their top issues heading into the midterms. I I can't imagine that that political logic is actually sound in terms of maximizing their electoral benefit, but. Nonetheless, it's the calculation they're making. I also do have to admit that there are actually some nuggets of pretty interesting information. Now, it's conveyed in a really obnoxious way because these hearings are unlike pretty much any other hearing in Congress that I've ever seen in that they're almost entirely scripted beforehand. Like even the colloquies between the members of the committee and the witnesses are like pre-planned, it seems, or there's no spontaneity at all. Like when they ask a question, it's just as though they're reading from a script and they're clearly oh. teleprompters set up. That's interesting. I do I, now. I wish I watched, but I watched uh, some of it. Uh, how long? Much longer are these things going to go on for? Uh, I think we're halfway through now. Maybe. <laughs> like we're only halfway through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They still have plenty of other, <laughs> plenty of new ground to uh, to tread. Apparently. Um, but anyway, today there was actually a fairly interesting, you know little factual nugget that came out, which is that this 
lawyer at Chapman University who had been kind of working freelance with Trump to come up with some kind of strategy to have Pence basically reject the slates of electors uh, on January 6th and quote-unquote send it back to the states. He um, – <laughs> they, they, they got his emails with Pence's counsel in the days running up to January 6th and then immediately afterwards and <laughs> – at like 11.30 at night on January 6th, after there had been this mob intrusion and everybody was going absolutely insane, the, um, this lawyer is a law professor who's, who's actually, I, th- I think, maybe sanctioned or he had some kind of repercussion at Chapman University um, after this all went down. But he sent, he sent uh, Pence's uh, counsel a last-ditch plea imploring him to please go through with it once and for all <laughs> after the mob had already run uh, run roughshod through the capital. So he was still trying to devise this plan uh, almost at midnight on after a full day of January 6th you know, chaos. And, um, and then the same lawyer, his name is John Eastman, um, he, he then asked to be put on a list of potential pardons for Trump. Um, so that is pretty <laughs> so interesting. Talking, what, I mean, did I don't th- to, what did he want him to do the night of January 6th? He had been proposing this harebrained scheme to Pence yeah, where Pence, Pence could unilaterally vote, right? reject the submission of electoral votes from yeah, but that was too late. Six like, you said you said like midnight. Didn't they go back and they did it like uh, during well, this the day but they, they were just about to reconvene after having been interrupted. Okay, so that was that was late in the night when they reconvened. I don't. They remember. reconvened. They reconvened real late. Yeah, um, okay. but even at the very last possible yeah. moment, <laughs> this guy was emailing Pence's yeah. counsel after they had just been, you know shepherded into this undisclosed location in the basement of the Capitol and trying to still lobby Pence to go through with this plan. Um, now, I, we had a, I, had a, I had a big debate on the last call that we did with some guy who was challenging me on my view of January 6th and to what extent it constituted potential criminality or like how we should, we should conceptualize the significance of it. And I do still tend to think that Criminalizing what Trump's conduct was seems like a far-fetched and a potentially quote-unquote norm-violating course of action given that you would actually have to invent a whole new theory of criminality to actually charge Trump with something because it's not like he physically participated in the mob, right? Um, but it is sort of an interesting point of information that this lawyer who had been handpicked by Trump to kind of run this external operation to lobby Pence had at least enough of a potential cognizance of guilt that he requested to be put on this list of potential pardons for Trump as he was leaving office. And then when he was brought before the, uh, the select committee, they showed a montage of him pleading the fifth and not answering any questions. Um, so, you know, what does it all add up to? I'm not sure. Um, is the focus on it, I think, you know, politically ridiculous in lots of ways? Sure. But uh, I also can't deny that there are actually some pretty interesting little nuggets of information that you can glean if you actually do pay attention to these things as, as theatrical and annoyingly choreographed as they are.
Uh-huh. Are they during the day now? Or because I just turned on CNN to see if they're on. So they're apparently not on. They used to be on primetime. Um, the, fir- the first one was a primetime event that was uh, produced by this former ABC News uh, producer. And I guess they, they're still produced by the same guy. But yeah, after the first one last Thursday, so a week ago. But Congress hired a producer to... to... Yeah, I mean, the, the select committee hired a standalone producer to make like an, a made-for-TV event out of these hearings. <laughs> what? I don't know. I thought like uh, when you record stuff in Congress, it's like C-SPAN. There's a standard way. I didn't know Congress uh, does that. That's, that's pretty Yeah, because well, I mean they're they're collating all kinds of video footage and clips, uh, you know, from depositions and then from the riot itself and you know flashing up quotes and splicing all kinds of things together. So I guess they needed some professional TV savvy to do that in the op- optimum way. Uh, um but yeah, since the first hearing they've been on uh in the morning or afternoon. So Gotcha. Okay, so yeah, I'm probably not gonna have a chance to watch them, but that's interesting. You see, they're completely. I mean, there there is something called YouTube where you can log on after (laughs) they're live and and watch them if you'd like. Yeah, Um, and the the Republicans are not participating at all except for like Liz Cheney. Is that right? Well, it's Liz Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Yeah, Uh, but the Republicans Um, are not asking. Are they asking any questions? Are they doing anything? Are they completely? Well, I mean, Liz Liz Cheney, if she's still considered a Republican, I mean, she definitely is a Republican, but she's. Cheney, yeah, no, that. it's just Kinzinger and Cheney, uh, but they're given they're they've been given hugely prominent roles. I mean, Liz Cheney basically inaugurated the hearings um, on the first night, and Kinzinger is everywhere, you know, basically touting them. But no, the, uh, when, they, when the when the select committee was first being assembled, it had been proposed. The, the uh, most Republicans, at least, were in theory supportive. Of or many Republicans, I'm not sure if most, but many Republicans were at least in theory supportive of some kind of committee to investigate January 6th. Um, but then Pelosi vetoed the selections of committee members by uh, Kevin McCarthy, including uh, Jim Jordan and one other that I'm forgetting, on the ground that they could be potentially com- uh, found to have been complicit in the attack. Yeah. And so that basically led the Republican caucus under the aegis of McCarthy to just withdraw all support um, aside from, you know, and, and also denounce Cheney and, and Kinzinger for even taking part. Yeah. So, so, the, so I saw, yeah, so Cheney, I mean, it sounds like she's, sounds like she's digging her own political grave. Apparently there's a poll where she's uh, losing by like 30 points uh, in Wyoming. So she's putting herself like as the most prominent person in these hearings. This is uh this is a, this is a um, this is true belief. I mean, I think <laughs> you agree with me that Liz Cheney is doing this because she believes in it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because <laughs> if you just are inclined to dislike Liz Cheney, as I generally have been, I mean, I, when she first got elected to Congress, it was kind of kind of went under the radar. I think she first first elected in two thousand either sixteen or eighteen to Congress. Um, and she just used her family name to basically game the Republican nomination process in a small state like Wyoming, where she seems to barely live. Um, and you know, then the, all the baggage of the, the family name—we don't have to go through it. But I think you could also—I think you could extend your just generalized dislike for her and what she presents politically with a maybe mistaken conviction. 
that she must be operating just purely cynically? I'm not sure that actually is the case. I, mean, I actually do think if it weren't for like the incentives of partisanship and if it weren't for how you'd get excoriated in the media, um, there probably would be a fair chunk of additional Republicans who would share Cheney's general view about January 6th and Trump's you know, responsibility for it, just for, you know, like defiling institutions and um, upending democracy in a way that just, you know, uh, desecrates the American image on the world stage, you know, cliches like that. Um, I think, so I think, I think Cheney seems to be motivated by conviction. Um, I think it's probably, it's not the conviction that I identify with. But yeah. I don't really see a whole lot of evidence that she's just a sheer yeah. no, opportunist. I think, I'll, I'll go further than that. I think this is the clearest case of like any politician I've seen acting against their political interests since like Ron Paul, <laughs> since everything Ron Paul ever did, um, uh, running for president or whatever. I think I think it's clearly she's. I mean, she. You have to think about her situation. Yeah, she came in in 2016. They automatically made her number three. In the House yeah. leadership, just because of you know pretty much affirmative action reasons, and I guess maybe the Cheney family, um, and so they make her like they always have a woman actually in leadership. I think it was uh, that uh, lady McRogers, I think was her name, was before. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. This Cheney, yeah. so they just put From her Washington. at the top of the thing, and then like you know, and, and all she has to do is be pro-Trump, right? And she can just sit there. She can sit at the top of the Republican. You know, she could be Speaker of the House one day, right? She's she, she, maybe something more. Um, all she has to do is all she has to do is go along with the Republicans. I mean, these guys McCarthy and Scalise are not the most charismatic, you know, guys in the world. So just her being a woman, being a Cheney, I mean, is being loyal to Trump. I mean, that all that could have got her far. And now she's going to lose her primaries and never be in politics again. So maybe she'll, you know, maybe MSNBC will hire her, of course, you know. Uh, but that's not as good as being, you know, Speaker of the House or whatever. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, this is clearly a. Or she probably uh, could have got, gotten elected to the Senate. You know, in Wyoming, it's a it's a small state, so she's automatically going to be the front runner for any Senate race. Yeah, but no, Speaker available. of the House is better. I think Speaker of the House is better than being just well, one whatever, senator, whatever, she, yeah, whatever she job been, she wanted to ascend to. Exactly, been, she could have been any. She could have been anything. Uh, yeah, right. She could have been as high as she wanted in Congress. Yeah, exactly. Everything was so stacked in her favor. Um, and she, yeah, and she basically, she threw it all away. She's got no future in politics. Um, so it's pretty amazing. I mean, Kinzinger just didn't, uh, run again. He's finished too. Uh, there was a guy who just lost, who voted uh, to impeach Trump. He just lost his, um, uh, he just lost his primary, uh, the other night. Um, so yeah. 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 In South, in South Carolina, Tom, uh, Tom Rice. I think, but I think you're right that like, you know, I think if there was a secret vote, secret vote on like impeachment, yeah, I probably, I, you know, maybe he probably would have got half. I think it probably would have got half the Republicans wanted to impeach. Trump. Yeah, well, I mean, Mitch McConnell gave a searing yeah, speech, yeah, 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 condemning Trump on January sixth, and he said that the vote he took to certify the election results that day, you know, after they dispersed the mob. That was the most important vote he ever took in his entire career. That's what Mitch McConnell said at the time. So more important than Iraq or the Patriot Act or you know TARP or you know whatever NAFTA or whatever. That's what Mitch McConnell said was the most important vote because you know to send a message that Congress won't capitulate to these mob intruders. Um, and even you know they, there are, there are these clips that come out of Kevin McCarthy. You know basically. 
saying on the phone how fed up he is with Trump, you know, in the in the aftermath of January 6th. So I, I do actually think that there's <laughs> that Ch- Cheney, maybe because of like the unique factors around her familial lineage and whatever other reason, she actually is seeming to hold true to principle. Uh, again, it's not a principle that I would prioritize or find much valor in, but it's principle nevertheless. And, you know, throughout Trump's presidency, to the, uh, to the extent that she ever really voiced criticisms prior to January 6th, it was mostly around – it was mostly tepid and it was mostly just very narrowly uh, around certain foreign policy issues, like similar to what McConnell did. Um, like Liz Cheney did not support the first impeachment of Trump. Um, and and so it wasn't like she was some kind of anti-Trump zealot. She was basically willing to make accommodations for for Trump. Yeah, of course. Uh-huh. Um, and it seemed like you know she uh, there was some Rubicon that was crossed for her on January sixth, which is like I mean I I'm not somebody who who really thinks that January sixth was this seismically important event in human history as so many others do. But I can still understand how somebody of like a Cheney's of Cheney's inclinations would view it that way. Just you know, this is like this desecration of the temple of democracy or whatever. <laughs> yes, and I'm sure there are the other Republicans who feel the same way, but have basically stifled that out of you know political calculation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after all the democracies her dad started wars for, you could tell that it's a, it's a very, very very important concept to her. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. I think when people are personally threatened by something, it changes things a little bit. But I'm actually, you know, I'm actually, um, you know, it's, it's what I expected to happen. But it is actually, you know, amazing what. You know, I think these people are cowards. Like, I, in a way, I respect Liz Cheney more than I respect most Republicans who I think are just sort of going along with it. I mean, these people really believe uh, Trump is awful. Now, actually, let me actually let me take that back because I think that they're they're making a political ideal. You know, it depends on how much they're motivated by personal gain and how much they're motivated by uh, ideology. I think if you're a conservative, you you don't want to. Uh, if you all you care about is conservative political outcomes, you don't want to uh, rock the boat with Trump. You don't want to start a party civil war. But I think a lot of these guys are just doing it for self-interested reasons. And, you know, it's like, why are you, know, why are you in politics is to get elected and just, you know, have have power and influence and, and money. <laughs> it's not really about much else. Well, the Cheneys of the world, at least, you know, they have something else, although it's like. It sucks that it's like neoconism is like, you know, what motivates people to be idealistic. Yeah, and you know, a counter argument would be, what are you guys talking about? Cheney's political career is not over. In fact, it's been bolstered by her seeming to take this uniquely courageous stance because she's being lionized throughout liberal media. And <laughs> Which is she great was, for Wyoming and, Republican and, primary. Well, and also, but I mean, it is true, though, that the most sought after commodity within liberal media is this, you know, never Trump Republican type. Oh, yeah. If her goal is to be a media person, oh, she's, yeah, this is the best possible path for her, right? It's not the best possible path for her. Well, I mean, she was also, she was also, um, I mean, she was given the uh, Profile and Courage Award by the John F. Kennedy Library, and Maria Shriver, <laughs> who was involved in running that, was <laughs> gushing over Liz Cheney on the first night of the hearings. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe I don't know. She that, maybe she doesn't like being a politician, is what you're saying, and uh, she just wants to do something else, and this is the best way to do that. 
Yeah, or there there are potential other avenues for her to still be politically active, even if it's not in electoral politics, or maybe even it is in some more formal governing capacity. I mean, she's Secretary I don't know. of Defense. Yeah, Democrat yeah, a Democrat position. could appoint her, you know, Secretary <laughs> of Defense or something like that. No, I, I just don't think that's likely. People always have these like fantasies of like this republic is going to appoint this Democrat. No, the Democratic constituents. Well, Obama did that. Who who did? Well, Obama appointed oh, Bob yeah, Gates his Secretary of Defense, and then uh, Chuck Hagel. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Uh, they were a little they were a little bit more uh, moderate Republicans. Foreign policy, right, but, he, but he kept on Gates from the Bush administration. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know Cheney is seen as, but but there is a constituency they, you do have to compromise. I, I guess it depends on who the d- Democratic president is. If you get a real hawk. As a Democratic uh, president, yeah, someone like Joe Biden, who actually cares about foreign policy, and is not going to be a Cheney eye on foreign policy, wouldn't do it. Uh, so, but it would have to be somebody down the line who's actually more hawkish who could actually countenance uh, having Liz Cheney there. Yeah, I think you're right if that's what she wants. Uh, she could have been that in a Republican administration too, by the way. Probably much more likely than getting appointed in the Democratic administration. Uh, so, yeah, it's. Um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I don't see how she doesn't lose. <laughs> she doesn't lose badly in, in Wyoming. It seems, it seems pretty, pretty Yeah, awesome. you know, la- last year I, would, I had this minor debate. I think you might have actually been involved with it peripherally on, on Twitter, but it was basically this debate over whether Cheney's uh, fissure with the Republican Party was cynical or, or ideological, right? And this, the idea was that that, that people were promoting, certain people were promoting, was that Cheney being basically cast out of the Republican Party is evidence that the Republican Party is taking on this more working class image. <laughs> yeah, because this, yes. they, can't ho- they can't countenance Cheney anymore, who I don't know exactly what kind of elitism they were claiming that she represented in the Republican Party. Like Kevin McCarthy does it. They thought she was a warmonger, right? Yeah, and it's just like, no, I, mean, I don't really think that's the crux of it at all. I think she was, to- she was perfectly... You know, um, capable of just existing within the Republican po- coalition prior to January sixth without much problem, um, and she—it's not like she radically, she had a radically different foreign policy views prior to January sixth, right? Um, so no, I just think it really—it really does come down, I and mean, it's sort of like it can sound like a cheap MSNBC style talking point, but on occasion those talking points might be correct. Which is that, I mean, to the extent that, that there's any kind of ideological or political content to this fissure, it really is just about a, a, allegiance to Trump. I mean, I, I can't see what other factors really are relevant that could be extrapolated into some kind of overall principle. Yeah. That is, I mean, that's right. I mean, the reason that's right is, you know, obvious. Yeah, because of, uh, yeah, I remember this debate. There's always these guys like on Twitter, like these uh, pro-Trump people or these mega people who are like trying to like construct some kind of ideological uh, explanation for what's going on. So like, yeah, but that's of course nonsense because you, because as you said, before January 6th, Liz Cheney was fine in the Republican Party. She rose up to like the top of the party without doing anything, just coming into Congress. Um, and then, you know, obviously also you have like Mike Pompeo, who's in good standing with the Trump movement, or at least with Trump himself, and, you know, Lindsey Graham. Uh, so, yeah, there are, so, yeah, this is, uh, this is, the party's basically about loyalty to Trump or not loyalty to Trump. It doesn't mean the ideological stuff is 
completely fake. Like in the end, like Trump, especially when he was president, and if he's the nominee again, like it's it, the dividing line is like loyalty to Trump versus not loyalty to Trump. Just like when when he's president or when he's like at the center of public life, like when you or when you have to win an election and you have to beat the libs, yeah, then then it's all just it's all about unity, whatever, uh, whatever brings the party uh, together. Um, but you know, there is like behind the scenes sort of jockeying for like power and appointments between people who like like Trump from the beginning, and those people tend to like like people like uh, Doug McGregor um, and uh, people like that. Um, and then you have the people who sort of came later, but are like the Washington people um, who are more pro-war and would desert Trump if they had the chance. And if it's you know much much more likely to. Part of the reason is Trump is like a vessel for the. Uh, non-interventionists if like trump is not there non-interventionists have no role in the republican party so they i think they tend to be like the most loyal to trump like in addition to ideological reasons to like him um and then you have yeah you have the people who are you have the pro-war people who are everyone from like liz cheney to like mike pompeo who are just like either accepting of trump and like doing well in his orbit or rejecting him yeah i mean there can be some genuine political principles that are entangled with allegiance to trump but there are also certain instances when it really is just sheer allegiance to trump and it has no real bearing on any any other political consideration like trump going around endorsing in these primaries for congress why would he intervene in a random congressional primary in south carolina against this just generic conservative republican tom rice who nobody had ever even really heard of other than tom rice happened to surprisingly vote to impeach trump i mean it has no other political content besides that well maybe it does have political content maybe you know if you are if you believe that the point of uh being involved in politics or being a republican or being conservative is to beat the libs and you have to do what's right for the party like splitting with the party on something like impeachment is a signal that maybe you're not you know the person to do it so maybe you know there is some kind of rationality to this i think if you're a conservative yeah, I, 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 but the, the, the crux of it, though, and you can graft other like second order yeah, considerations I onto I it, is, is what's going on in Trump's head? I yeah. don't think, find me somebody who disagrees. Find somebody who's like telling me that Trump is is not about loyalty to Trump when it comes to his endorsements. I don't think you'll find anyone who says that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, speaking of Lindsey Graham, uh, <laughs> he he put out an interesting. Uh, not really an interesting tweet. Interesting in terms of the reaction to this tweet from earlier this evening. It got totally ratioed by people who are just laying into him. Because Lindsey Graham is complaining that he just met with some delegation from Ukraine that had been visiting D.C. And they're complaining that despite all of these billions of dollars being appropriated and all these pledges of military equipment being made, uh, the pace is just not nearly sufficient to actually turn the tide against Ukraine. And uh, he links to a, a Time article that um, kind of illustrates a paradox that we talked about a little bit last week, but it's kind of continuing to intensify, which is that you know in this Time article, it mentions that as part of this latest batch of weaponry that Biden announced – this week, um, you know, that draws from both presidential's drawdown authority and also the $40 billion that had been allocated by Congress last month. Uh, Ukraine is going to be receiving for the first time 
two vehicle-mounted harpoon anti-ship missiles, which, you know, in theory can be used to blast away even more Russian warships in the Black Sea. But the problem is, and this was Lindsey Graham's point, is that it'll take months for these (laughs) ships to arrive. And we're being told now... That I mean, the latest estimate, and this is—I don't know if you saw this. I, I actually forgot to send this to you, but there, one of the guys on this delegation to D.C. from Ukraine this week is now saying that up to 500 Ukrainian soldiers are being killed per day. Yeah, I saw this. Yeah, I don't um, know if they feel the—I don't know. Like they, you know, they keep upping it. Like it was as Lindsay was saying, 100 for a while, then they said one to 200, and now they're saying 500. I don't know if they're telling the truth or they have an incentive. They must feel like you know there's some good reason to make it sound like they're just dying in big numbers. But I mean, I think that backfires because it looks like like that's unsustainable and they're just getting crushed. So I think they I think they sort of make it look hopeless if they're losing that badly. Yeah, I mean, how, and how could? By the way, you know, side note: How could 500 killed in action a day be sustainable? No, I can't. I mean, that's that's why that's why you know either they're. You know, it's like it's like a pressure thing where it's like, okay, get us the weapons like now, literally, like today, uh, or the war's going to end. But like, if we, if the uh, Washington's not moved on that, then like you can't keep saying uh, you can't keep saying five hundred are dying a day forever because no one's going to believe that. Yeah, and so like the the paradoxical element of this that I'm getting at is that, and we've talked about this before, but again, it keeps sort of building. In the past several weeks, there's definitely been a change the tenor of the coverage of the conflict like you i uh listen you you, we we both listened to this new york times podcast the the daily yeah where there was this correspondent and the host saying how shocked they were and how they finally come to this newfound realization that maybe they weren't getting the full picture about the (laughs) ukrainian side of the conflict these past couple months like it finally dawned on them um, and you know, it, they, it, they just came to this epiphany that, oh, gee whiz, it turns out that all the information we've been getting about the status of the Ukrainian forces has been from the press releases that they send to our yeah. email inboxes. Um, so they just finally figured out that that might distort their perception of the war's progress. Um, and that's just one example. I mean, that, that's like the most normie liberal podcast imaginable, right? So it, it's even, infiltrating those venues and uh, lots of pessimistic articles in Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times. And yet, on the other hand, nothing about the actual policy orientation of the U.S. seems to change. And not just the U.S., but of Europe. I mean, today, uh, Macron, Draghi from Italy and uh, Scholz from Germany made their long-awaited trip for the first time since the war started to Kiev. And these guys, these three, this trio had been castigated as being like the chief appeaser caucus within yeah. the European Union. And, you know, Scholz in particular has just been furiously attacked for, you know, hedging on the weapons that he had pledged to send and all this. And um, so the theory, a theory that I saw percolating was that they were going to be going to Ukraine on this appeasement mission and presenting Zelensky with a deal of like terms of surrender or something. You know, maybe something happened behind the scenes that we're not aware of, but at least in terms of what they're saying publicly about that trip is that they all just doubled down. Um, they profess that they're not going to support expedited admission of Ukraine into the European Union. Um, 
Macron said specifically that they're not going to ever uh, put pressure on Zelensky to make any kind of concessions. And uh, they're all they're making new commitments for weapons shipments. And then you know after <laughs> uh, they had this preliminary meeting of defense ministers ahead of the next NATO summit later this month. And you had the Ukraine defense minister come out and give from at that meeting yesterday and give an interview to CNN. And, and he said, yeah, all these weapons that the U.S. is sending to us, those are going to be used not just to retake the territory that we've lost since February 24th, but that we're going to go into Crimea. So you have on the one hand this pessimism that's pessimism that seems to be circulating around this, the nature of the Ukrainian war effort, but that's sort of coupled with a doubling down on a policy level, um, and it, so in other words, the pessimism doesn't seem to ha- have any effect at all on changing the actual approach to the war. <laughs> well, I mean, I think yeah, I think there's uh, some yeah puzzling things about Ukraine, and I think this is the, these are, you know it's it's the same kind of problems that uh, you know uh, uh, showed themselves like before the war. Like, why couldn't Ukraine uh, come to some agreement with Russia like before the war? Because that would have been the, the best possible outcome for them. I uh, mean, everything else now is just. Uh, trying to make do with the you know best you can of a bad situation, and the fact that you know they did it. I mean, they didn't uh, you know they didn't they didn't implement uh, the Minsk Accords. I mean, they didn't really make any effort. They just didn't believe Biden um, and the Americans when they were telling them that Russia was going to invade. Uh, so either you know Zelensky's you know either not a good decision maker or he feels pressure from the nationalists, um, which just seems more likely. And that, you know that problem has persisted. Probably became worse. Uh, so you can expect you could expect you know there's you know there's something wrong with you know the decision making process in Ukraine um, that's gonna you know that's gonna lead them in uh, that's gonna lead them in a potentially uh, continue to lead them in a potentially disastrous direction. Uh, one thing that's I think very interesting about the um, about the aid that's provided. So like when we heard that you know the U.S. was giving forty billion uh, to Ukraine um, the, on top of what they'd given them before, uh, you know there was a report in. Uh, I think the New York Times or uh, one of the papers that said uh, that uh, you know that all the all the ammunition and all the all the um, ammunition that the U.S. provided Ukraine would match the Russians for four days, right? And if that's if that's true, if like forty billion you know matches the Russians for four days, and if we you know we we gave them ten times that much, you know, so they would last for forty days. If we gave them four hundred billion, which would be half the uh, you know the American defense budget, like so, if if, if American aid is that insignificant, uh, it doesn't seem like uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to make that much of a difference um, in the war. Uh, so, you know, if, the, if that report is true, if it's not just propaganda that basically all the USA adds up to is like four days of artillery, um, that to match the Russians, uh, then, you know, this, this thing is hopeless. I mean, the Ukrainians are just going to keep losing because what the U S can provide, U S cannot realistically, uh, provide, um, enough weapons to make a difference in this war. Yeah. You know, I was listening to one of the regular daily uh, updates on the war's progression and uh, that airs on Sky News. And the military analyst, this you know English guy, said that literally at this point, and who knows if this is strictly true, although it's, it's consistent with what's being reported, he said that at this point, every 
every piece of ammunition that's used by Ukraine is is NATO provided ammunition. It's not anything that had been in their stockpiles. They're out. So. Again, it's sort of paradoxical, right? Because on the one hand, it doesn't seem like the U.S. is providing nearly enough to actually make a substantial difference in the trajectory of the war. And yet on the other hand, it's only because of this kind of blank check policy of subsidization that the war can even continue and that, the, that Ukraine can even contemplate, you know, planning a counteroffensive or what have you. Because without these weapons shipments, they, they would run out of – they would be literally out of ammo. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, the, the U S supplies are the critical variable. Uh, but on the other hand, they're not critical enough to actually make any sort of major difference. Um, so it really, it seems to add up to what had been kind of speculated and even confirmed in bits and pieces from the beginning, which is that they want to you know, bleed Russia dry, just have it going as long as possible to achieve what Austin, the defense secretary, said was the purpose of the policy, which is to weaken Russia. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah, it doesn't maybe. seem like it seems like if they if they wanted to, if they truly were that invested in a decisive victory, they could come up with the logistical arrangements to actually you know, land some kind of major blow on Russia, or maybe not. Maybe I'm oblivious as to the practicalities of that. Maybe, I mean, maybe it's, I don't, I don't know how hard it is because it's, um, yeah, because like Russia, I mean, has been spending multiples of, you know, whatever Ukraine has been spending on the military for decades and decades. And so you can't just like uh, match their stockpile and match their weaponry just like within a few months. I mean, and, to, you know, and to do so, I mean, will be very expensive. I mean, we're giving these dollar amounts that are, you know, politically sustainable in the United States, but, you know, we're not going to spend, if it takes like 500 billion, uh, to beat Ukraine, I can't imagine that the U.S. is going to spend that much. I mean, I think it's going to get more and more controversial every aid package that gets there. So it just could be that the U.S., you know, unless it gave them like nuclear weapons or something, I mean, it cannot, um, you know, cannot change the ultimate outcome um, of the war, but uh, based on any kind of you know realistic um, aid that it could that it could uh, provide. Um, you know, as far as the U.S. you know trying to bleed Russia, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I think they're just you know, I think they're just sort of. In, in politics mode, they're just you know they they, they can't uh, you know they can't like not give aid and they can't like you know spend the entire treasury on Ukraine. So they're just doing something in between, uh, which is just you know sort of how policy uh, always works. But you know what's less interesting to me, it's you know more interesting than what the U.S. is doing is like if you know the way we're seeing it now is like what is Ukraine doing? Like if they're really losing like five hundred men a day and like you know they and they're all you know and there really isn't hope. I mean the Potentially, they would know this. I mean, is it just they are so under the control, you know, of of nationalist forces that they don't care? They're willing to basically do Mariupol um, on the scale mm-hmm. of the entire country. Uh, that's the question. And you know, people will say, "Oh, this is what the Europe- Ukrainian people, you know, want public opinion." But I mean, that's that's nonsense. I mean, I think most people most of the time want peace, um, and I think they would, you know, that most, uh, you know, we don't have like a poll or an election right now going. I wonder if is Ukraine going to have elections if the war still going on indefinitely. I wonder. That'll be actually very interesting. I wonder when the next uh, Ukrainian election is. Um, 
Yeah, but, I'm not sure. I'm not, sure, gonna, I'm not yeah. sure they're mandated to have them on any particular time no, no, table. They have, they have regular presidential elections. They do right? have regular. I, I think they have regular elections, but it's just by convention. It's just by convention, so there's no law that says. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. That that the next, that's, I think. Uh, but it says the next presidential election uh, per the Constitution of Ukraine. So it sounds like it is written on the last Sunday of March in spring 2014. Uh, so yeah, spring 2014, they're going to have a presidential election. 2024. 2024, yeah. Uh, next, okay, yeah, Ukrainian okay. parliamentary election. Well, they're not going to let anyone who's like, quote unquote, pro Russian run anyway, right? So maybe, it's probably not going to be. Uh, it's probably not going to be an accurate reflection. It'll be accurate. It'll be a reflection of something. You'll see like how extreme. You know, do they vote for like the most pro peace candidates or do they vote for the most uh, uh, pro war candidates? Right. They'll be the, so it looks like the. Um, uh, so yeah, the parliament is supposed to yeah the parliament's supposed to be the same. But it's supposed to be the fifth year after the last election. Um, will be held on okay. So uh, will be held on Sunday October for the fifth year of the parliament. If snap election. okay. So yeah, five years. So five years after I think the last election. Um, so it's that's also twenty. Looks like it's also twenty twenty four. So we got yeah we've got we've got some time until there's another Ukrainian election. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I just, I, I, I mean, I wonder, you know, we will see what the, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you saw this, but like I, the Institute for War, which, you know, summarize, which summarized things. And this is kind of, and this source was from the, somewhere in the Ukrainian government. They said there were 330,000, uh, Russians, including support staff, um, committed to the invasion, right? To the, uh, invasion right now. So 330, so, so it's like 150, which is like around what they've been Wait, so inside the country? Uh, I think it, I didn't, I didn't see that, but it's including support staff. So maybe that includes people in Russia, um, who are, you know, uh, whatever, doing whatever they're doing in Russia. Um, but yeah, uh, 300, let's see, uh, they've committed 330 to the invasion without conducting, uh, blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, this is, uh, yeah, non-combat support, sea elements. Yeah. Uh, so. This is, you know, this is a, this, this is a, uh, I, you know, I've been listening to a lot of the, you know, the specialists on Russia, the Russian army, and their idea was basically that, you know, the R- Russians just couldn't replace the manpower. They basically, they didn't declare general mobilization, they're not using conscripts, but apparently they have the troops from somewhere and they're using a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, like National Guard and they're uh, using, uh, they've got like 10,000 from, uh, uh, or eight thousand uh, from uh, private contractors, so you could just spend money. I mean, they have more money now than they did before the invasion because of the price of oil. So if you just right. want to you know, pay a bunch of mercenaries, you know that could that could fill in some gaps. Uh, so you know, I think it's the Ukrainians. I mean, they're just completely out of you know the weapons that they need. The Russian manpower um, advantage looks to be the Russian manpower uh, situation looks to be much better than people thought uh, a couple weeks ago or you know a month ago. Um, and the Ukrainian, the, the big, the big question mark about Ukraine was whether they can uh, mobilize enough men to fight, not just to defend their homes, like their their local areas, but to actually go go on the offensive or even to go like on the defensive in the in the east. Um, we don't know. Like they could just not be showing up because there's no point if you have no weapons. There's no reason to go up there and get massacred. But they 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 supposedly are getting massacred in big numbers anyway. Um, so yeah, it's a everything. I mean, everything on the Ukrainian side is a question mark, right? It's like every you know, it's like do you have enough men? Are you going to be able to uh, have enough weaponry? 
um, and the Russians, you know, are doing better than people uh, thought. So, like, you would think it's so. Str- and this is why I don't think there's going to be a peace agreement because it's like we had a we had a like it doesn't matter how the war is going. So when the war looked like it was going really good, when it was very scary, it looked like Russia was going to like take Kiev, and people were assuming all these cities that were getting uh, they were getting a siege like Kharkiv. When people assumed they were going to fall, there was no pressure for a peace agreement. Then for a while, it looked like Ukraine was doing well, like they'd beaten the uh, invasion back, and people were talking about the time Ukraine retaking, you know, uh, even pre-February 24th territory. Um, and there was, and so it looked like Ukraine was doing well, um, and then there was no, like, talk of real effort towards peace. And now Russia's doing well. There's still no talk for peace. So it's like, I think the political dynamics uh, are such that there's, you know, it's hard to imagine, like, the, the politics have gotten so extreme that it's hard to imagine uh, how we get to a place where, where a settlement is even politically possible. I mean, the the Russian, you know, the relations between the U.S. and Russia, you know, at the diplomatic level are, you know, are, they say they're more, uh, they're more, um, uh, they're more uh, uh, hostile than they were, like, at the height of the Cold War. And like you know, you wonder why this sh- why this should be the case um, when like you know Russia today is not as bad as the Soviet Union was once was. I think our politics have changed. I think it's social mediaification of everything. I think the blob is like you know more established than it was. The realist, the sort of more realist outlook represented by people like Schultz and Kissinger. You know that's out of fashion. You just have like neocons on the right or like you know Trumpists who are sort of neocony, and then on the left you have like these liberal internationalists who are responding to Twitter and responding to NGOs. Um, and are responding to the media. And so just, you know, there's just, I, I don't see the our capabilities for actually reaching an agreement to, to end this thing. And there's also this article of faith that actually Biden articulated in a very garbled way in his latest AP interview. You know, I think I mentioned on this call last week that Biden had done drastically less print media than any of his recent predecessors. So maybe that message got across and they finally cajoled Biden into sitting down for one interview, which came out today with the, with the AP. And uh, it's funny because it's barely even, it's like sort of almost less comprehensible than a Trump interview because it's with, with Trump. It was funny because when you listen to him speak orally, you could pretty much understand what he was saying most of the time, but then whenever <laughs> yeah, it was transcribed true. to text, it made yeah. no sense. Um, and that dynamic might be even worse with, with Biden. But anyway, he goes into this whole – he's actually, for the first time maybe since February, pressed on something that he just expresses as a matter of faith, like dogmatically, that of course the U.S. needed to take strong action after the invasion. Otherwise, stuff would have been really bad, even if that meant imposing some costs on American consumers for with gas prices or whatever else. And the AP reporter actually asked him, okay, so what do you mean would have happened if you didn't act? Like, can you actually explain what would have happened that would have been so allegedly catastrophic? And uh, here's what he says. And this is sort of – this is just sort of a less coherent representation of the article of faith that you hear everywhere when they talk about this conflict. I mean it's it's almost unchallengeable in its certitude. Oh, I hear what would have happened – Oh, I fear that what would have happened next is you'd see chaos in Europe. You would see the possibility that they continue to move. Uh, What would have happened in all the surrounding countries? Watch what would happen in Poland and the Czech Republic and all members of NATO. Um, 
And uh, the idea that if the United States stood by, then what does China think about Taiwan? What does North <laughs> Korea think about the nuclear weapons beyond testing and pressure? Um, and he, here, here's, the, here's the kicker. So you asked me what I would say to the American people. I'd say to the American people, I've done foreign policy my whole career. I'm convinced that if we let Russia roll and Putin roll, he wouldn't stop. Okay, so that gets to the point of how it seems just unfeasible that there could be a peace negotiation or even any kind of diplomatic resolution given this sort of dogma that's been attached to the war. Because if they make a concession in which Putin gains certain territory, then that contradicts their, their whole the whole reason why they were so frenzied about why total victory was needed against Putin. So does that mean that now if Putin is given the Donbass, um, that, then China is going to be emboldened to take Taiwan? Um, does it mean that you know somehow the Czech Republic is going to descend well, into this chaos? Is, this is Biden's um, – well, this is, the, this is funny because this is the sort of the uh, idea he rejected in the Afghanistan withdrawal, right? People who are critics of the Afgan, Afgan, Afghanistan withdrawal uh, said that, oh, now China is going to blah, blah, blah. You know, even yeah. uh, some people have blamed, right, the – of the Afghanistan withdrawal for the invasion of Ukraine. So, you know, Biden rejected that. That's DeSantis' line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, like, yeah, he rejects that. But now, like, you know, I think that's just a – yeah, and the, the problem with this mentality is it justifies anything, right? You could invade some random country and you can never stop fighting in that country because – Yeah, what, what message it. will it send to Nicaragua if we don't prevail in Ukraine? <laughs> Yeah, it's so silly. I mean, I, I, but I don't like, uh, yeah. And so, like, the idea that Putin would stop, there was a great article. I don't know if you saw this in the Wall Street Journal about the railroad system in uh, Ukraine. And basically, it's what it said. It, it explains that, like, in the East, like, so Russia has, you know, the, the, the Russian railroads are compatible with Ukrainian railroads, but not European railroads. But, like, the in the east of uh, Ukraine, in Donba- Donbass, it's like there's very dense railroads. So Russia could move everywhere by railroads, right? Coming down from uh, uh, Belarus into Kiev, all, the rest of the country, there weren't as much railroads. They had to travel on roads. And that was just a disaster. Uh, yeah. For, um, and, you know, and, and the... And the, and the um, and the point of, I mean, the point of this is, like, it goes unsaid, but it's like, you know, the rest of Europe is has European uh, the railway system. It's completely incompatible with the Russian thing. So Russia would have to drive, literally drive on the highway, like, through Ukraine <laughs> to get to the rest of Europe. It's crazy. I mean, it's it, a Russian invasion of anywhere. But actually, Finland has the same, apparently, the same railroad system, so they could invade Finland just based on railroads, I guess. Uh, but, you know... But other than that, I mean, the, the, you want to go, want to take a, a call-in uh, field trip to Finland and investigate the r- railroad compatibility for, <laughs> for, in case of yeah. future conflicts. Yeah, the railroad determinism. But no, it was so. I was. I so, actually uh, was reading about some Finland history recently that I hadn't been that aware of before about how basically Finland did concede huge amounts of territory to Russia in uh, after the Winter War in the uh, in the forties. Right, and it's still a live question as to whether Finland could potentially ever reclaim some of that territory that had been conceded to, Is that a live to Russia. I thought, I thought well, it's not somewhere. not really, but it's it, it's been brought up recently in light of the NATO admission and related issues. Yeah, the Finnish war is uh, yeah fascinating, and the, the, the Finnish war is fascinating. Uh, Sean McMeekin's uh, Stalin's War has a good piece on Finland and uh, they actually captured a lot of the Russian soldiers in Finland and like, they, you know, they interviewed them and, you know, the interviews of like what they, what was like in Stalinist Russia uh, 
in the uh, late 1930s, early 1940s is is very interesting. And then they put uh, the, they put the Finnish poli- political leadership on trial for war crimes, not because they committed a war crime, but because they didn't do enough to avert the war. Like that was the crime that they were charged with, and like the some of the top political leadership of the country was imprisoned for like seven years. Oh, really? Well, that was uh, yeah, that was pretty um, interesting. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that is a, that is interesting. Uh, but yeah, I mean, back to the point. I mean, the point yeah. is, it's, it's uh, there's no going to be no invasion of Poland. There's going to be no, Putin is not going to Putin is going to stop. Like there is no Polish invasion. There is no Czech invasion. There is no German invasion. Like you can worry about other things like gas diplomacy and stuff. Uh, but that's just a stupid argument. And then you have the you know the thing about the uh, you know China is watching like. You know, like yeah, like in theory, but like you know, it's 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 uh, you know, okay, you could say that, like honestly, like, if the U.S. looks like it's going to fight over everything, and like no matter what, like okay, that makes China like think twice about you know invading Taiwan. But you have to assume like it's going to invade Taiwan. Like if you don't do that, it might just not want to invade Taiwan anyway. Um, and and you know, you it's and it's unpredictable too. I mean, because it's like. Uh, you know, it's like China might just think, okay, I might we better invade Taiwan now while the U.S. is distracted, or it can make them more hostile to the U.S. You know, this is just these are just ad hoc theories to justify forever war. I mean, they're so dumb, and it's like you know, it's it's there's no like attempt to be logically consistent with them. They're just trotted out whenever people want to justify whatever the U.S. happens to be doing at the moment. Yeah, and it's all it's it's all just fundamentally mumbo jumbo. I mean, it's nothing more yeah. than just their own projection. They never cite any hard evidence. They never start cite anything tangible. It's just like what Biden sees in his crystal ball, you know. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's emotional. I mean, the the Russian, it's the Putin, it's the Putin, it's the personal, it's the it's the Russia is you know bad and not democratic and you know uh, homophobic. I mean, it's really is this stuff, and it's you know it's and with the Ukraine and Florida. I mean, if the U.S. wanted to avert, sorry to interrupt, but if the U.S. really wanted to avert war with China, maybe what it would do is stop launching these provocative military exercises in the South China Sea and stop sending, like, the Secretary of Defense to Singapore like they did last weekend where he goes and accuses, you know, uh, China of being belligerent and, um, you know, and and unilaterally changing the one, uh, one nation policy on Taiwan, even though Biden went to Japan last month and just randomly declared that the U.S. will go to war with China over Taiwan. I mean, maybe they would stop doing some of that stuff if they really were interested in averting a war with Taiwan rather than fixating on some like multidimensional extrapolation that Xi Jinping could make from the outcome in Ukraine. Yeah, I don't think their goal is to avoid uh, war with China. It's more... uh... It seems to be more. Yeah, you're right. They can stop doing all that stuff, but they, they would say uh, that would um, embolden Xi and make him invade Taiwan. Right? Their goal is not to avoid war. Their goal is to make uh, invasion of Taiwan less likely, and then if the invasion of Taiwan does happen, uh, you know, help Taiwan win or uh, 
uh, you know, or make it as difficult as possible uh, for for China. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, you know, this, this is the problem with global empire. It's like you have to be everywhere, and like, you know, it's like it's such mumbo jumbo, right? It's like it's like you know, which, yeah, we have to we all have to be really invested in what sort of security pack the Solomon Islands comes up with. Yeah, that, that, that's a fun, that's a funny one. Yeah, it's like there's so much stuff they're throwing at the wall. It's like you don't even know. Like, could you could, like 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 be, be honest? Did you know offhand where the Solomon Islands were located? I vaguely, very vaguely knew, but of course I had to look it up. But like that's now like a big focal point for us geostrategically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I recently read a book on the Pacific Theater in uh, World War II, so I did. I did know where the Solomon Islands was, but you're right. I, you know, that <laughs> there's no reason to know other than that uh, where they are. And there was another one too, wasn't there? Another one of those countries in the Pacific that China had a, but did, did it, 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 that ended up not happening, right? It was it, Solomon Islands, I think, happened, and then there was like another one or two countries that don't matter. Um, that were supposed maybe, to but like, but I know that the, the the U.S. sent some diplomat to the Solomon Islands to register a formal objection, along with Australia, that they had brokered some kind of security pact with with China. Uh, so the uh, China proposed Solomon. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, well, because like you could throw whatever you want. Like, okay, so you can say China is on the march, right? So if China, you know, you can say China is on the march. Um, you could say, you know, you have to stand up to China because if you don't, they're going to go to another country. Uh, you could also say that, you know, um, China, you know, you have to stand up to China because other people are watching. You could also just make some vague thing about great power competition in the U.S. You know, um, having to protect its interests and. Uh, and you know, ma- you know, maintain maintain its you know way of life, or you could make it a humanitarian thing, and you could make it about protecting democracy in Taiwan or Ukraine. So it's like it's funny because there's not like one story about American foreign policy. There's like five stories. It's like we're always dealing with Hitler. We have a job. We have to maintain our power, and we have to um, and we have to defend democracy. Uh, and you know, and we have to be like we have to do a humanitarian intervention, and we have to preserve a rules based international order. And it's just, it's obviously like all so post hoc. It's all just putting together like all this random stuff just to justify what they want to be doing. And you know, the real, uh, you know, the real motivations are more just sort of reactive and you know, uh, uh, you know, reactive and ideological. And yeah, there's like, yeah, there's 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 no point in even like. You know, engaging with this stuff seriously as far as like Biden. You know, the only time Biden I thought made any sense was when he was talking about the Afghanistan withdrawal. I thought yeah. that was a great that was a great speech. And like, you know, you, you you saw clear thinking. Like, why are we there? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? Uh, is it worth it? Um, are things going well? And yeah, he made an actual coherent you know coherent argument. When when you with your, when you do something smart, you know, there's good reasons to do so. There's uh, you can come up with good reasons to do so. When you're just sort of justifying whatever the status quo is, you have to just sort of grab whatever you can. And like he didn't, you know, he didn't make it into like, he didn't make this like 5D chess thing about Afghanistan. Oh, we're going to pull out of Afghanistan so everyone knows we're really smart. And now, you know, Putin's not going to think, no, it's just about the situation in Afghanistan, right? Um, and yeah, you don't get that kind of, you know, clarity when it comes to this other stuff, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, people accuse me of being just a knee-jerk anti-democratic pundit or something, but <laughs> I went through like a month of daily fights with right-wingers over Afghanistan because they would do this uh, cop-out that I'm sure you recall where they'll say, oh, it wasn't about the withdrawal itself. We all wanted to withdraw. It was about the manner in which the withdrawal was done. And um, coming up with all kinds of bogus criticisms to basically just deflect from the fact that 
that was probably the only successful operation in Afghanistan that the U.S. military had conducted since 2002 to actually withdraw the forces. And so I actually – I was pretty stalwartly uh, defending Biden for for quite a while, um, including even going on to Tucker's show and defending him. So I I would love to hear some other – some more, one of these other exemplars of nonpartisan thinking give an example of what they've done in that regard. But, um, but I think you, you made a really good point that Biden is actually continuing – he's actually committing the same offense of a magical thinking that was used against him with regard to Afghanistan. That you know, Because of the weakness that was showed, it's you know, emboldening our enemies um, and it's having this domino – Theory type effect on all these disparate regions in the world because they're looking, they're watching close. And Trump used the same argument against Biden. They're watching closely what happened with Afghanistan. So you know, Xi and Putin got together and f- figured that now is the time to you know strike while the iron's hot or something. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so. Par- I mean, we don't realize how paranoid and crazy this sounds. Imagine just try to imagine another country talking like this. Like China was like, we need to be fighting in Cambodia because like the U.S. is watching us when it comes to Cuba or something like that or Venezuela. I mean, it is so ridiculous if you put it like that. But it's like you know, it's, it's sort of the, it makes a little more sense to the American context because the U.S. thinks that you know it basically is the uh, is the global policeman. And so I guess the police, you know, the police force has to maintain its uh, reputation everywhere. Um, but, you know, we're allowed to question whether that's that's actually a good idea. Yep. All right. Now, uh, shall we go to some callers? Sure. All right. Eric, you're up. Eric, are you there? Howitzer. I hardly knew her. <laughs> I was hoping someone would compliment that. Title probably the ke- the uh, cleverest one that I've come up with for a call in a room. It's a thinker. But anyways, uh, I you know I I, I, I want to relate a little bit of a discussion I had with one of my friends. You know, um, in the this uh, what do you call it foggy bottom area I live in. I live uh, near GW. But you know, basically, he's been very you know he's a Kuwaiti and he's very much. Um, you know, uh, pro-Ukraine, um, and, um, you know, but I had to try to really drill this down with him, and I just had to ask him, okay, well, you know, I mean, I'm gay, but, like, would you rather be, you know, a gay person living in Russia or a gay person living in Saudi Arabia, you know? Um, or, and then I also had to ask him, well, would you rather be, you know, um, a, civil- a civilian living in, in Yemen under a Saudi assault or a civilian in Ukraine under uh, a Russian assault, you know, um, and, um, but and then, but ultimately I was pressing him on was just like, okay, but do you actually think that like Ukraine could possibly win? Like, is it they or they're going to win? And it's like, I hate to make it so simplistic, but just look at a map and like very big country, very small country. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sorry that they're, they're, and that they're fighting and, you know, they're, Kiev is at threat of being taken. Moscow is not going to, in any case, be a threat of being taken. But um, I don't know, because there's what this magical thinking, you know, is very dangerous because, of course, things can happen accidentally that people don't intend. Um, But at this point, you know, my modest proposal is I I actually I have a way that Ukraine can get into NATO. Um, Do you guys want to hear it? Okay, here it comes. Okay, they could be. They Nobody's could, um, come up with this, could, but it's could, foolproof. They could convert um, into the world's leading LGBT army. 
Well, you know, um, there's a lot of competition there. So um, I've seen some funny videos from Chinese TikTok that actually make me think that actually China might be able to gay up their military as well. So let's not um, lose sight of that competition. <laughs> but no, um, okay, here's what they could do is um, because the United States, we're already a member of NATO, right? So what we should do is we should have the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada, uh, vote to become a state in the United States. Wouldn't and that then, increase the white population and give more uh, electoral college uh, uh, advantage to uh, r- white rural areas? Is that what we want to be doing? But that's the great thing is we can trade that for D.C. or Puerto Rico. Would Marjorie Taylor Greene be willing to represent Mariupol? If that's the case, then I'm willing to entertain this trade. Mariupol, my name is Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I'm here to pump you up. She and I don't know how high the vaccination rates are in Mariupol either. So she'd probably. I think I think the slobs are pretty. They give red state America a run for their money on the uh, uh, back skepticism. But I don't know about Ukraine, but I know I know Russia is pretty skeptical. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, a point that I've emphasized a lot on these shows. and you sort of mentioned the potential for mistakes or unexpected events, and that really is probably the kind of key trigger point that we can't fully predict in terms of some potential wider escalation down the line. And the, and given that there seems to be no prospects for a diplomatic resolution for the reasons that we've outlined, really what that means is that there's indefinite possibility of some sort of unforeseen event taking place. And, you know, just this, just yesterday it was reported that these two dopes, um, U.S. military veterans from Alabama, got themselves captured by Russia in Ukraine um, around uh, Kharkiv, apparently. And um, I don't know, you know, given the how <laughs> stuff flies across social media in a split second – I don't know, maybe Russia could put them on some sort of show trial. I mean, that's all speculation. But it seems at least plausible that there could be some uh, eventuality along these lines that could then be cited to necessitate some kind of more full-scale intervention. And I I think people, again, should think about what's happened really in perspective. It's only been four months. It's not that long in the grand scheme of things. And there's always something that could come up within the next couple months that we can't fully anticipate. So that really, to me, is one of the main dangers of having this, this, in, this policy of an indefinite blank check that uh, it, it sort of leaves so much to chance. Um, so, yeah. Well, one thing we can anticipate, yeah. though, is like, uh, is I'm sorry, but is Biden's mortality – and um, the question we have to ask is, is even if we think Biden has done a, um, at least a good thing in terms of withdrawing from Afghanistan and in terms of keeping Afghan, uh, the Ukraine war from becoming um, much deeper, do we really think Kamala would be able to do that if she even wanted to? I think we lost him. Um, looks like... Uh... Richard just dropped out of the room, so let me see if I can get him back. Here we go. Richard, you are back. 
Yeah, I mean, the design of this app is the Le- the Leaf speakers is right next to the mute button. So <laughs> yeah. it's very easy to screw that up, and that happens, like, at least once a show, so I should probably, you should probably <laughs> tell the to makers, the calling people that. Yeah. Um, you shouldn't get a thought that was interrupted. Uh, no, I, I, I lost it. Okay, uh, thanks, Eric. Can to go to Roger? Uh Hello, Michael. Hello, Richard. Can you hear Hello. me? Hello. Yes, we can. How are you? I, I'm fine, actually. Uh, Michael, I'm a sort of a fan of yours now, but uh, I just discovered you recently. Richard, I haven't heard of you, but I, I'll endeavor to, to find out more about you as well. Anyway. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. I had some interesting thoughts, uh, or a couple of things I'd seen. I'd sort of... Um, um, like to let's say come from a more eastern bent on a few subjects so um i need to verify one i need to verify but uh but it's interesting it would be interesting if it's true let's say um that uh, huawei have, have actually made a quite significant now investment in um russia uh, regarding 5g and um, to automate uh, um, production or mining. So uh, you can imagine the, the Chinese um, power of automation being applied to Russian mining, and that could be quite an interesting thing. Another thing I learned, or, or, or which, which I think you might find interesting, was... Um, uh, it was an unrelated documentary, actually, quite an old one. Uh, it was talking about the Bikini Atolls and the, the US nuclear tests out there. And it was done by an old Australian journalist. And um, he interviewed this Chinese chap, and he said, um, you see, the problem with you is, this is the Chinese man speaking, he said, the problem with you is you are all Christian and you want to convert everybody. So I thought I'd leave you with those two points and uh, wish you uh, well. Thank you, Roger. Thanks, Roger. Um, Richard, any thought on Huawei? I mean, (laughs) I, I remember being a little bit confused as to why Huawei was such a point of contention these past couple years for no reason other than it seemed like it was just the, the big telecom based in China. Yeah, um, I, I, I can add a little bit of information to that. It, it was yeah. the fact that we would lose dominance in that market. Right, so, right, yes. So you have Cisco uh, and then in Ericsson and Nokia. Yeah. You can also do but if we if we lose that, then we've definitely lost 6G, let's say. Yeah, it's um, it's uh, yeah. It seems unlikely that there was any real security threat with Huawei because if it was, the U.S. wouldn't have to go around the world convincing people um, not to uh, let Huawei do the five G infrastructure. It was a real, it was a really hardball campaign during the uh, uh, Trump administration. It was semi successful, um, but yeah, they're going to be in uh, they're going to be in Russia. They were going to be in Russia uh, no matter what. Um, you know, speaking of Chinese more generally, I mean, I think that the, I, I've been surprised actually how uh, how limited their support for Russia has been. Um, 
you know, rhetorically and sort of policy wise, you know, there's a lot we don't know. They could be, you know, doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes. We haven't heard about it. I mean, this is a, this is a sort of black box. Um, and, you know, who knows, you know, the U.S. seems to have some decent intelligence on Russia. I mean, they were able to predict the invasion. So if there was like this widespread cooperation, you know, if there was like, uh, you know, but you think, you know, if there was like, you know, uh, uh, material move between China and Russia. I mean, that might, you know, they might pick up on that. But, you know, as far as we know, there hasn't been a lot of Chinese support for uh, uh, for Russia. Um, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't quite implying that. I mean, one of the, the reasons they, they constructed the, the Great Wall of China um, was to keep the barbarians out, not, not to... So, yes, in some ways that's very similar to the Trump Wall, let's say, but... Uh, yeah, no, I wasn't saying you were implied. I was just, you know, providing thoughts on where I think, you know, like the China but, aspect. But I, th- I think the last point is actually more interesting, and that we don't realize it is that this idea that we have to convert everyone. Yeah, I think that's true. I think this is all about democracy and NGOs and you know fighting corruption. And, yeah, yeah, not I, so I much about Christianity that's... anymore. I don't think. <laughs> Right. No, no, it's it's not, about, I think he's it's, speaking about it's not about Christianity anymore, but but whatever you yeah, it's you metaphorical. Can't leave it. You have grown up with it. You know it. You know it very well, and it doesn't leave you. It's like a ingrained cultural sense, right? Yeah, that, Maybe. that, that was the that was the interesting perspective from China. Yeah. Which, which, which the reverse is true, by the way. It's not that, you know, that, of course, that, you know, they have different um, um, philosophical thoughts out there, but, but they don't actually try and convert you. Yeah. No, I think. Yeah, so le- less of like an evangelist mentality. Yeah, I've always said at the, uh, you know, at heart, if you like, the U.S. foreign policy is not based on. Um, you know, objective material interests of the American people. It's based on, you know, interests of certain groups. And it's based on ideology. And that's the ideology. You can't leave, and that, you can't leave people alone. I mean, they admit this. They, they say it's about democracy. Yeah, and that's, that's yeah. why I think it's perfectly accurate. And I, I, I think that's, that's our problem. Like we try and export what we believe. Just quick devil's advocate point, Richard. I mean, short of actually supplying the war effort in a more tangible way where they're shipping in rockets to, you know, Kharkiv or something. It seems like China actually has done quite a bit to support the Russian war effort on a diplomatic front and on economic front. I mean, Russia, Russia's oil revenues have gone up considerably in the past couple of months and a huge percentage of that owes to China, right? And then, Xi and Putin just spoke apparently for the first time since February this week and you know they both put out statements about their deepening commitment to one another and they just opened up a new bridge uh, between in northern China and yeah. some, some remote region of Russia. About, about the Chinese companies who've been pulling out and maybe it's because the companies are somewhat independent of the government but you know the, the government can tell you know they pretty much tell the companies what to do, what to do. Uh, so, I mean, the biz- Chinese business has been much more, and, but maybe they, maybe they, maybe that's, you're, you're, you're sort of, maybe you're right. Maybe that's not the measure. 
um, because you know if, if Russians don't have great technology and like their consumer products suffer, maybe that's not a big deal. Maybe protecting Chinese companies but, from but, American sanctions is more important. But I, th- I think that's the interesting point, right? That, that, and that goes back to the China Wall reference. They're not actually warlike. They're actually trying to stop war coming to them. Mm-hmm. So they won't actively do do what the US does or the no. UK or Europe but they will provide diplomatic or business aid. Yeah. I think yeah, I think what China can't I mean I think you're right. I think that China cannot see you know what it, what it, what it I think it would want to avoid is a complete defeat and humiliation for uh, for Russia because if Russia doesn't matter at all in the world sphere then basically everyone can gang up on on China the West uh, that's you know that's what they that's what they want to do anyway NATO is now expanding its mission to fighting China uh, so I think that's right like whether like Russia actually wins in Ukraine or not maybe it's not that you know maybe it's not that important to them and you're right I mean I agree with your model of Chinese behavior in the sense that I don't think it's it's not a missionary civilization right it's a civilization that cares about itself and that's been true throughout history and it's true now all right uh Thanks, Roger. Let's go to Shelly. Hi, Hi. Guys, can you hear me? Yes, yep. Shelly, you can. Awesome. Uh, were you guys able to, you told me to check back in this week. Were you guys able <laughs> to check out the new Atlas? No, I'm so sorry. I, I did not. Did you, Michael? Ooh, I did. I, I looked at it. I did a cursory scan of it. It's just like, I wish some of these content creators would put out stuff other than just videos of them talking to a camera Wait, so, uh, do you need sparkles or do you want information <laughs> well i don't know how like an, an an article or something yeah I, he does articles it's just i where, where can we see what i do in my job i can listen and so i can't i don't have the time to like actually scan through yeah it's okay. kind of hypocritical so, seeing as we're doing an audio format right now so <laughs> yeah all right, right. I'll, I'll check, I'll, I will check out the new Atlas. So, but where can we find these articles? Um, I, he has a Telegram channel. I don't know because I don't look at his articles. Okay, I'm gonna subscribe to the Telegram right now. Okay, so I'm gonna get I'm gonna get this this guy stuff. All right, all right. Well, <laughs> check back in again next week. I'll I'll have I'll have it. Thanks for holding our feet to the fire on that. Styles Bitchley is that is that his name? What what else? Is the guy's name Styles Bitchley? No, it's Brian Berletic. Uh, how do I spell it? Brian with an I. Uh huh. And then B E R E C T L I C, I believe. Let me. Okay. I do want you to know that I actually, I actually did look it up and and scan through some of the co- the content, but I now I actually will I'll listen to at least one video. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll call back in next week and then okay. to another video. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I was actually curious because you guys have been talking about like sort of like the China, the whole China thing, and it just kind of seems to me that like if we're already struggling with the whole Russia situation, and I mean I've heard things about like our own war weapons are kind of running low, like you know that type of stuff, and then it's like oh okay well let's increase aggression with Taiwan because we can definitely fight a two front war, right? Isn't that weird? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, one of the arguments that some Republicans made in terms of why they voted for that forty billion in May, because they they 
accurately detected that they need to fend off some of the more skeptical complaints coming from within their coalition was that they needed to replenish the U.S. stocks. And part of that funding went to just, you know, providing more in the more stockpile of, for example, javelins. Um, and so maybe that's maybe that's sustainable now. But, yeah, you're right, because. This this Ukrainian official a couple of days ago put out just the most maximalist request for supplies. I don't know if you saw it, but it was like a thousand howitzers. Speaking of howitzers, I hardly knew her. They want they want the U.S. to send a thousand. They want the, basically the request that they put out that was tailored to their supposed needs in the east and south of Ukraine was for somehow to the U.S. to just furnish them an entirely new military overnight. And <laughs> we, the, the U.S. is not really equipped to do that. I mean, they can, we can barely get, you know, so, so look at how screwed up supply chains are already. Um, yeah, and our F-35s just crash. Yeah. And we've got three different models, one for the Navy, one for the Air Force, and one for the Marines. And they all have their own specifications, and they're all like $3 million. I can't remember the exact price. But the only way for this to work would be to actually create a war economy type situation, which, you know, if there is a recession in the next year or so, maybe that would be a way to uh, heat up the economy. Um, <laughs> actually Macron Macron said because uh, Macron appeared at this big defense industry uh, convention in mm-hmm. France uh, earlier this week and he declared that the that France has, has that France is now uh, has now transformed into a war economy is that what he said has, has he said there, that yeah have there, is there any metrics that, that uh, show that I don't think I don't know if he cited any metrics maybe it was just a flourish that doesn't translate Nicely, yeah. He's, he, um, he but he, but that's things. that's that's yeah. that's what it was report. That's what he was reported to have said. Yeah. Um, and and in or, but I, I guess the point is, in order for the U.S. to furnish the amount of equipment and material that Ukraine is requesting, it's, it's our solemn duty to provide them whatever they need, right? Or they say they need. Then the U.S. would have to, and the U.S. would couldn't would just do this piecemeal lend lease. Uh, formula, well, it would have to convert into some kind of more full-fledged war economy. Well, but I also don't know like how it is that we are going to like supply the Ukrainians with just unlimited javelins when what we really need to be doing is arming our teachers with those javelins to stop school <laughs> shootings. <laughs> <laughs> just, a, 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 a turkey in every kitchen, a javelin in every classroom don't exaggerate they just want handguns for all the teachers not not javelins come on okay. i think they should be trained I, I, come to think of it i think they should be trained on javelins i yeah, want to tweet that out right too. now no one would ever go into <laughs> no one would ever go to school if every school marm was armed <laughs> fired weapon and i'm obviously just kidding that's ridiculous um it's, it's, the teacher's a javelin and a rubber chicken. <laughs> oh, the hilarity. There's no <laughs> ends to it. Um, well, <laughs> thanks for that amusing thought, Shelly. And yeah. check back in next week and I'll, no, I'll, I'll promise I'll... I'll yet. <laughs> okay, sorry. Because I'm going to give you another project. I'm just okay, here we go. All right. So, I don't know. Are you familiar with this uh, gentleman called Rush Doshi? 
Mm-hmm. That sounds very familiar. Uh, he is uh, who is, I, I I know he follows me on Twitter. Who is he? Um, he is a oh, he's the guy. He was the guy from Yale who wrote that book on China, The Long Game. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever read it? Uh, yes, I I read it. Okay, so there were a couple of points in here, and I can't find like rather than me just saying hold on and flipping through a book. There was a certain section where he had written down oh wow the founding director of the brookings china china strategy initiative sounds fascinating (laughs) oh we need to talk about john allen today by the way that was a funny story (laughs) but anyway so there was like a couple of pages where he had kind of written down like some of the sprawling notes you know where he kind of pieced them together which was sort of like the chinese government's assessment of the united states and its political situation i don't know if you remember those but i thought they were really interesting richard because I thought they kind of nailed us. I thought they, like, the Chinese analysis of the situation in the U.S. was kind of spot on. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I like- Refresh my memory. What was that? What was the analysis? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about now. I, I, read, I read some of that. Yeah. Um, I think. Hold on, hold on. Uh, he's talking about. Let's see. There was a. There was a. There was a Chinese. Some Chinese. Uh, China has some chief. Or at least yeah. the Communist Party has some chief theoretician. Yeah. Who they like, sent. Like, I don't think he's like officially the chief theoretician. I think people just call him that. Yeah. Okay, right. but so there was somebody who they sent to the U.S. in the 90s to do yeah, an yeah. Alexis de Tocqueville type think, examination of the U.S., him. right? I think he just, he, I think he just did some. He's talking about Wang Huning, or however you say that guy's name. Yeah, close enough. Um, so here we go. Most papers tell us. Uh, Similar if simplistic casual story, the West's 40-year experiment experiment with neoliberal economic policies exacerbated economic inequality and ethnic strife, which in turn produced populist waves that paralyzed the state, all amplified by a freewheeling Western information environment. Here's another quote. Um, Renan University argued that this neoliberalism wave began with the Thatcher Revolution in 79 and the Reagan Revolution in 80 and led to a division between the rich and poor. With its democratic society, the U.S. is unable to prevent financial capitalism from swelling or to take dramatic action against vested interests, which causes stagnation and inequality. These forces hollowed out the U.S. economy with success in technology and financial services industry coming at the expense of exports and traditional industry. I agree. (laughs) um (laughs) yeah i i I would have to really read it myself probably to come to to give you a more intelligent response um well the reason why like i was just mentioning that part about like there were a couple of pages that i found especially interesting because it kind of seemed like the chinese sort of nailed like sort of our yeah i think this is a pretty i think this is these are pretty standard critiques though that you'll find uh, in the U.S., um, I don't think you know when you read China. I mean, often it's uh, their critiques of like Western uh, Western culture. Like if you look at the Chinese propaganda, uh, like the uh, Chinese media Twitter accounts, it's like they don't they never say really anything original. It's like the same things that New York Times are talking about. Like it's like if New York Times talking about Black Lives Matter or inequality. They're talking about the same thing. Yeah, uh, so it's more cutting, I think. 
They're, yeah, they're more, of course, they're more aggressive. Uh, but yeah, they, they, Russia seems to, you know, have like a different kind of critique. It's more like a right wing critique that they seem to echo a lot of things that conservative media says, while China just seems to be reading CNN and <laughs> just sort of repeating whatever they their, say. Their state media, their state media that's directed towards a Western audience is really fucking pitiful. But I was bringing up that guy because he's like supposed to be Biden's like chop China hand, China hand. And, like, the first part of his book, like, there was only a little bit about, like, how they assess, you know, the United States. But other than that, it's like that guy was assessing Chinese military. Uh, that's right. He was hired, he was hired by Biden, right? He, he's on the National Security Council. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's, like, kind of his top China hand from what yeah. I understand. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. But yeah. Essentially, like, the first part of his book is just talking about what the Chinese military has done and what they've prepared for. And if you like, whenever I was reading that, I was like, "Holy shit! We better never fuck with China. They've invested in so many like submarines, landmines, you know, like the cruise destroying missiles, like all that other type of stuff. If, if we really want to get into a confrontation with China, they will fuck our warships up." Yeah, you know, the other funny thing about that book is I remember it's like it's basically admits that the you know, a lot of these hawks do this where they admit basically it's like the problem with like China is like the US is is imperialist. Um, It basically basically says that like China doesn't trust the US because the US has this sort of ideology that it's got to tell other countries what to do. And it's like, yeah, that's right. And it never says like, oh, like, you know. Maybe we should leave them alone. It's almost like, yeah, the liberal the liberal internationalism is just uh, taken for granted. Yeah, it tells us something that, uh, yeah, I mean, it tells us something. This guy was hired by the Biden administration. I mean, Biden is um, really a hawk on Russia and China, or very conventional, just a conventional politician. I think he moved. Um, he's just sick of the Middle East. Uh, but um, yeah, these questions, it's been a very, very Yeah, remember question. during the 2020 campaign when... Uh, MAGA people would say that there was this incredibly dramatic difference between Trump and Biden, in particular on policy related to China. Okay, so what? Where's the difference? I mean, what what is Biden doing now on China policy, at least in terms of the mil- military grand strategy? That is any different at all from what Trump had been doing. There's none. I mean, it's just total continuity. No, 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 Michael, you're wrong. I can answer. I can answer that question. They pronounce China differently. No, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I, excuse so me. One hundred percent. China. Giant. It's China. You say it with a G. Um, but no, this this was fun. I'll check back with you next week. All right, thanks, Shelly. And uh, Shelly, we won't we won't disappoint you again. I, appre- I appreciate you uh, you giving us homework. That's <laughs> it gives me it brings me back to my school days. I think I had a teacher well, named Shelly actually. Okay, I'm uh, javelin in the closet. So if you guys don't actually do it, I will fire it approximately at your location and probably hit a hospital. So can you conceal carry a javelin? Um, I am not. Is that a javelin in your pocket, or you just have this? <laughs> oh my lord. All right. Um, thanks, Shelly. Yes. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. All right. And last but not least, Revolution. Um, if that is your real name, which I oh, doubt. scary. My name's Revolution. Come on. You don't believe it? Rev-o-lution. <laughs> <laughs> no, First name, Rev. I have another. Yeah. My hashtag 
no more is my usual name, but I oh, okay, yeah, I know you. And I'm in another uh, call-in right now, and I didn't want to jump out. So, you know, oh wow, have, you are you're, you're you're committed to the app. I have to. I am you. committed to the call as a brand as a brand, brand ambassador. I you're am different rooms at once. Is that what you're doing <laughs> with your different uh, uh, profiles? Is that what we're saying? Double profile. What other room are you in right now? Like, what's going? What else is going on? I'm calling that. Andrew, forces you to multitask. Shelly was there who was just on. She was moderating for a while. She Shelley's was moderating. Yeah. She's the moderator. It got contentious and I understand she had to bow out for a little bit. Oh. Sympathetic for that. But, drama. Um, well, drama's, uh, drama's good to maintain interest in the app. So It helps interest and yeah, it brings views. You know, that's how it works. But um, anyway, I wanted to ask you, Michael, about um, how soon you think everybody's going to abandon Zelensky. I thought it was going to happen like immediately in the last few days. Hasn't happened quite yet. But abandon meaning what? Like cutting him off from further aid or forcing him to make territorial concessions, something like that? Well, I think the territorial concessions is maybe a bridge too far for America, but certainly cutting them off from funding. I mean, I saw the New York Times, uh, I get their their push notifications, and they pushed a notification to me either this morning or yesterday that Biden was authorizing another billion to Ukraine. I thought this was going to stop. I thought it was clear that Ukraine was losing this war. The war's kind of over. But well, under you got you got to understand what that billion that was just announced is derived from. It's derived in part from the forty billion that was passed by Congress. You know what was it? Less than a month ago. So yeah, why would the, the, they've already locked in another couple months of commitment? financially so what are they going to do just renege on that i mean i don't i think that's why that was a very extremely significant event because it I mean it meant that you know temporary setbacks in ukraine's prospects is not going to fundamentally change u.s policy maybe i think richard's probably right that if another package were to be debated you know in september or something it's probably going to be much more contentious and you know, conceivably, but that might not even pass, depending on what happens. Um, I mean, at least for now, at least for now, through the summer, I mean, there's no real reason to just give up on Zelensky. They've already allocated him forty billion. He's the top recipient of U.S. aid, and he's still making all this everywhere. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 not, it's, it's not it's not as fevered as it was obviously the first month or two, where he's just this nonstop rock star. But even just at this. Uh, security conference last weekend where Austin spoke. Of course, Zelensky beams in, and he's somehow like this top speaker at a uh, an Asian security conference, and he's opining you know, on Taiwan. I mean, he's just like a philosopher king or something. <laughs> no, Zelensky. No, nobody will ever cut off Zelensky. He's he's too big for you know. He's just the halo around his. He's too big to fail. He's too big to fail. Yeah, but they're uh, you know they will. Be. It's um. I mean, that's. I mean, I tell you, I don't know if I. He's AIG. 
Yeah, I never told. You, I don't know if I ever told you this, Michael, but my, my friend uh, Philip Roman has a good has a good theory that you want uh, you want Zelensky to be you know like a god because you want him to have the prestige to be able to make peace in Ukraine, like just to be a much bigger figure than the than the nationalist. So you know, maybe we need to be we need to be propping him up as the philosopher king. He started out his career as somebody who was more accommodating to Russia, uh, moved in a more hawkish direction as time went on. Seems like that was a lot of political pressure on him. Uh, so maybe you know maybe he's the only man who can make peace. He sounds less crazy than his vi- advisors. Like he'll occasionally say stuff like you know we'll have to. We'll have to realize we're not going to be in NATO. He at one point even said, you know, just going back to February 24 borders would be enough. Like, you know, a lot of his advisors, American, you know, State Department, American uh, American officials, they don't talk like that. So, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, he just needs his status needs to be high enough to eventually make peace is one way out of this. Yeah, and, he, and he's been all over the map with his statements. I mean, especially when there were still negotiations underway with Russia, he would contradict himself every other sentence. And you have this other dynamic now where on the one hand, his defense minister will say that, yeah, we're going after Crimea with all these American-provided weapons, but Zelensky himself might not say that as overtly on, on one given week, but he has said stuff like that in the past. So, I mean, it's impossible to tell like what statement you can actually attribute to him as the overriding policy. Um, and I think there might be actually some maybe inadvertent or it made its adver- advertent down, uh, downside to elevating him to this mythical status because it kind of assumes that he has control over statecraft in this sort of unilateral fashion that you would expect for just any other president. But, president, but it's, it's unclear what power he really even has within the system as it's currently constituted in Ukraine. I mean, how much autonomy does the military brass have? I know he technically is the commander in chief of the military, but really all he seems to do or much of what he seems to do is just sheer PR on a daily basis. And he's delegated out a lot of the military stuff to generals. So, I mean, how much decision-making is he really engaging in on a practical level that could translate into him having direct control over, for example, making territorial concessions. I mean, it's not, it's not, not clear. Um, so, so I guess it's possible that assigning him this kind of a supernatural aura is overstating the amount of authority that he would have to make some kind of, you know, um, negotiated concession, um, because he just ha- doesn't have the power anymore, given the kind of intrinsic chaos that a state undergoes when it's at war, like uh, U- the Ukraine has been, especially when you know Ukraine, as we know it, has only really existed for eight years. It's true. Uh, anyway, um, okay, let's go. One to- other question. Yeah. Any any thoughts on? My other phone's dinging, sorry. Um, any thoughts on <laughs> Jank Uger's claims recently? Uh, especially RE, Brianna Joy Gray not being a leftist, who plainly is a leftist, and his desire to be the litigator of who is a leftist and who is not. And I mean, that, that is the most. <laughs> It's, I, I know what you're talking about. It's just so incredibly yeah. boring. I can hardly even summon the will to address it. 
because <laughs> okay, I hate I this whole. But I, I see where you're coming from with it being boring because it is. It is. I so hate. Stupid. I, I can't it stand so this whole stupid. genre of commentary. I mean, there's there's like a current of com of commentary on the left wing, left liberal sort of punditocracy that you can pick up on at times where there's always they're always debating who's genuinely leftist and who has abandoned their leftism to become a contrarian heterodox grifter. And it's just like, I, right. I, mean, I don't, who, do you really put that much stock in these kind of fleeting ideological designations? I mean, I'm sure somebody like Brianna probably does because she, you know, she has, you know, her, uh, part of what she focuses on is from like a standpoint of laying out what by her lights is like the optimal left wing platform, right? You know, and she was the press secretary for Bernie Sanders, so you know, she's going to be more right. invested in that. But for just these pundits, I mean, it's just so tedious that I can hardly even bother to pay much attention to it. Uh, I don't know if, <clears throat> you know, I get lumped in that group sometimes as somebody because I happen to work at the Young yeah. for a strange year and a half, but other than that, I don't really care. I just find it supreme. The, the reason I focus on it, and I hear your perspective and and tend to sympathize with, with that as well, but, you know, I mean, and I don't know if you consider yourself a leftist. I, I think, you know, policy-wise, from what I hear of you, you you are a little further left than, than right, but, you know, it's neither here here nor there. Honestly, in the in the scheme of things, I think your your contribution uh, rhetorically is is important. But the reason I focus on it is like, from my perspective, who I consider myself a leftist, this bickering, and I'm not fully convinced TYT is is on the left anymore personally, but they are on certain issues, and the left is small enough already in my opinion, where, like, these little battles, and I didn't expect Brianna to respond to it, which she did on the Hill where she's been filling in and I think is a contributor at something on the Rising Show at this point. But the left is so small that, like, these little battles kind of ding us and, like, harm us. And I just wish, like, Jank would shut the fuck up and Brianna should have just let it go. And that's where I come from on all of it. Is like, we don't have enough allies as it is. Like, the Bernie movement was pretty big. And I wanted it to be bigger. I wanted Bernie to win. And he's certainly disappointed me a lot in the last couple years since he kind of bowed his knee to Biden. But, you know, I just focus on it because it, it it's just so upsetting that... We have these little bickering bullshits and I just want people to like skip on it. But then I he I see it and I'm like, God damn it. And then I focus on it. And then I, I guess in some way I'm kind of contributing to it as well by, by focusing on it. So I don't know. That's where. Yeah. Where well, I, I mean, there's, the, there's nothing new about people that about left wing public figures being at each other's throats. I mean, that's happened from time immemorial. So, I wouldn't be surprised or particularly even disquieted by that. I just think the whole sort of 
nature of the debate right now is just so frivolous and tedious and annoying that it's hardly even worth engaging with. Uh, my, for my part, you know, as time goes on, and maybe this is a creeping cynicism that is increasingly manifest in me, but I'm, I'm just less and less... I care less and less about ideological self-categorization. It's just not as an, nearly as important to me as it might have once been. So I just let people categorize me how they see fit without really putting too much stock in it or even contesting it. If that, hey, Michael, I'm, I'm just watching the Golden something. State Warriors. I'm just my TV's on the background. The Warriors are are ra- just won the championship and they're wrapping they themselves won. in U- the flag of Ukraine. Oh my god! Oh my <laughs> One of the god! Like a Ukraine, like flag. He's sitting there. And he's just like, oh wow! Oh my god! That's great. <laughs> I knew there was a good reason why I was just bizarrely apathetic about watching this finals. Like I haven't really watched any of it, and I actually am uh, usually a pretty big NBA fan. I don't know. I just haven't really been moved to watch, and I think now that that proves my intuition right. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go to hey. one last quick, quick caller, Jonas, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Jonas, you're up. All right. Can you? Yep. Well, uh, I was going to ask, uh, I think you get touched on this a little bit, or at least for uh, the John Allen story. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess is, yeah, everybody's been talking about Russian influence, but, what about Qatar's influence in America? And I guess what's your list of what countries have the most influence in America? Foreign countries, I should say. <laughs> well, if you look at the amount Obviously, of money, that, the number one. But well, the number the number one country, at least if you tally up, is no, it's it's Ukraine. Ukraine As of two thousand twenty one, it surpassed Saudi Arabia based on the number of income, the number of money that they have disclosed to the to Farah under that statute for lobbying done on behalf of foreign interests in, in DC. They, you know, Saudi Arabia was far and away number one for the longest time. And then all of a sudden in 2021, Ukraine supplanted them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is hilarious that especially cause John Allen was caught uh, apparently in this FBI investigation where he's covering up his influence peddling by claiming that he was just doing this innocuous speaking engagements in Qatar when really he's uh, acting as some kind of emissary, you know, you know, ferrying messages back and forth between Qatari interests and the administration. And this wasn't just some random freelancing general. I mean, <laughs> he was the head, of the, the head of the Brookings Institution, which is probably the most influential think tank in D.C., um, well, was and also U.S. troops in Afghanistan. It was much bigger than head of the Brookings. He was uh, head of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Um, and yeah, the, oh, by the way, I, I'm not sure it was the Ukrainian flag. Actually, is there another flag that's blue and yellow? I'm confused there because I see another flag. I think they might be having their national flags of the warrior. So uh, not uh, gonna, I, that might that might not actually be true. It might be too good to be true. Oh, you got my hopes up. <laughs> I'm trying to see what this flag. Okay, if someone knows, it, it might be. Oh, well, I gotta look it chat up. If someone, if someone knows, it might be. Uh, because the because the the warriors' colors are kind of blue and yellow. No, it's a it's a flag. It's like a national flag of something. Um, hmm. it's, uh, it's like blue on the top, and then yellow stripe, and then blue on the bottom. Ukraine is just blue and yellow, right? And then this is like blue, yellow, blue. Uh, 
I don't know. I'll figure it out, I'll figure it out later. Uh, but the uh, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, oh Cutter. Yeah, is Zelensky named? Is going Zelensky named the MVP of the NBA Finals? <laughs> <laughs> Comes on the jump <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what I was gonna say is that Qatar. It, it seems like you know. Don't they like pay a lot of money to the Brookings Institute, or at least a lot of money? They yeah, they do. they do. Yeah, this stuff is all public. Uh, all these think tanks are, uh, you know, they're they're to a large extent support. I mean, there's a great New York Times story uh, a couple of years ago about this. Like, you know, they have the uh, documents. You know, they were promising things to these countries, like they wouldn't go through, like they wouldn't go to like this, or the, they wouldn't go into this or that issue. And it wasn't just like Gulf Arab states; it was like Japan, Norway were giving them money. There was some like oil policy thing that Brookings was was going to do or not going to do because of uh, Norwegian influence. So yeah, American. I mean, foreign policy is just a. Uh, it's just an open system to whoever you know wants to funnel money into it, and if you can, yeah, you can have an influence. Mm. Yep. That's neat. All right, not my my interest is so peaked now in trying to figure out if there really are flying the Ukrainian flag. Here, let me let me I'm the, uh, rewind this to get that because I don't see the I don't see the flag on there. Is there a way to? Um... Is there, send, is there a way to send a photo? But I'm, 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 offend, I'm offended that you had uh, sports on as we're doing our sacred. No, poem. I'm not watching. It's just it's just the background. Don't worry. My, you have my undo, you have my undivided attention. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, yeah, I'm going to take a picture of my. I'm, gonna, I'm rewinding. Okay, okay. Here's the flag. Hold on. I'm going to. Yeah. Take can a you yeah, send gonna, it? Send it to I'm me. I'm going to text it to you now, and we're going to figure this out. Okay. This is going to be the big climax of our call-in session. <laughs> You tell me what this flag is. If I could post it in the uh, in the chat, uh, in the I don't think I don't think Colin allows that. But let's see. You're, you're sending it to me now. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying for. I'm uh, browsing through the DVR. I'm trying to get to the flag. I just had it. Just wait a second. Just like literally thirty seconds. I'll have it. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why. I I I only noticed after we scheduled this that the potential final game of the finals was on tonight, and it okay. didn't really bother me that much. I'm gonna send it. I'm gonna send it to you through a Signal. Okay. Signal. Let's see. And if you don't know, I'm going to post it on Twitter and then just ask people what flag is that. <laughs> you see what's... I think it's... Yeah. I think it's, is that Clay Thompson? That's not Ukraine, right? <laughs> I don't think... That, no, that's not Clay Thompson. No, that's not Clay Thompson either. Yeah, there's another... There's the flag of Mexico. You see the guy on the right has flag of Mexico. Yeah. And, and this other guy has this flag, which is blue, yellow, and blue, which I thought was Ukraine, but that's not, that's not Ukraine. I don't think it's Ukraine, no. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> what a what a what a bummer! I wish it was Ukraine. I'd be I'd be going like wild. <laughs> yeah, I All don't right. know what flag that is on the top of my. Head. It looks like it looks like a, that guy looks like he might be Eastern European of some other kind. Maybe I don't know. Um. All right, everybody. Well, on that dramatic note, let's uh, wrap it up, and uh, we'll reconvene soon. So take care. Thanks, Mike. Bye.